welcome to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hydric is the premier global provider of senior level executive search and leadership consulting services. Diversity and inclusion, leading through tumultuous times, and building thriving teams and organizations are among the core issues we talk with leaders about every day, including in our podcasts. Thank you for joining the conversation. Hi, I'm Charlie Moore, a Hydrogen Struggles partner and a member of our Global Life Sciences practice. In this podcast, I'm excited to speak to Luke Miles, GSK's Chief Commercial Officer. Headquartered in London, GSK is a global biopharmaceutical company aiming to positively impact the health of 2.5 billion patients by the end of 2030. Luke's career in the industry started in Australia in 1995 with AstraZeneca. This was followed by leadership roles in Thailand and the US with Sanofi, where incidentally he led the merger of Sanofi and Aventis. Moving to Roche in Switzerland in a global marketing role, and then as regional president for Asia Pacific, where he lived in Shanghai and Singapore. He moved to the UK with AstraZeneca to lead global product and portfolio strategy, as well as medical and corporate affairs, quite a job, before becoming EVP for the European business. Luke, that's quite a journey. I think I counted seven countries in 25 years. Welcome and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks, Charlie. Can we start by perhaps just running through your current role responsibilities, just to give us some context around what we're going to speak about in a moment? So my, my responsibilities in, in, in GSK are really two. Overall responsibility for commercial operations. We operate in about 120 countries, just over 20 billion pounds in revenue. And then the second part is pairing with uh, Tony Wood, our head of R&D, mm-hmm. to allocate resources in the pipeline and hopefully find some innovative medicines that can help people. Can we just touch on that? So the pipeline and where you are today, uh, you've been quite busy over the last couple of months. So perhaps just tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. I mean, I think any, any pharma company is very active, both in terms of progressing internal innovation, but also the fact is a huge amount of the most innovation because outside of companies. So part of that has been, I spent about a day a week on this, which is probably more than typical for, for someone in my role identifying and then transacting programs that we can bring in or companies that we can acquire. And so, yeah, we've, we've been active in hematology, identifying a, a molecule for myelofibrosis, which hopefully will be approved this month, right through to um, antimicrobial resistance, which is a, an area that we're increasingly engaged in and anchors on a historical strength of GSK, which is infectious diseases. And if we just focus on the commercial side of that, we'll come back to the, the R&D piece perhaps in a moment. But there's a lot going on in the industry. There's a lot of change. Yeah, the reduced access to healthcare professionals, the physician autonomy that's changing, the digital AI sort of environment around that. And then in the States particularly, you've got the IRA issue. How's that impacting in terms of commercial design? And I guess the follow-on is, does that change, therefore, the type of profile that's going to be successful in those roles going forward? If you look at the industry it's always in a state of flux. I mean, it's, it's inbuilt into the nature of the industry. We have patent expiries, you have scientific evolution, clinical practice changes, and that has commercial consequences. You then add elements which tend to be more country or region specific like IRA or access. And it means that as a commercial organization, you have to be constantly challenging yourself. And we have very fast feedback loops. If you think about it, if you're looking at R&D productivity, in an organization, it may take 10 years for that to be visible. For a commercial organization, that is tangible within a couple of quarters, whether you're improving or you're losing ground. 
And so I think elements like IRA are going to have a big influence commercially. Not, all, not always downside, there's upside as well. But the core theme is, I think, strategically, a commercial organization needs to work in what I would call positive tension with the R&D organization. And I think the most productive companies in the industry are those that have this very positive tension between R&D and commercial. If R&D is too strong, we end up with scientifically compelling uh, projects that may not be clinically meaningful. Uh, if commercial is too strong, then we end up with the 18th ACE inhibitor, which no one really needs. And so that balance where you're trying to find something that's scientifically compelling but is clinically meaningful and is then therefore supported in terms of access. So now operationally with commercial right now, I think COVID of course was very disruptive. Physician patterns have changed, diagnosis rates have changed. But I think structurally for us, we're seeing a convergence of the remote access, giving physicians more options in terms of when they interact with us, but also critically a convergence with some of the machine learning AI technologies whereby we can rapidly respond and, and not only respond effectively and give material and scientific information to physicians, which is valuable, but also we can get to a predictive dimension and working out when we see that pattern of requests for information, what's likely to be the next consequence and sequence for that physician. So that has very positive elements, but I think the core element in the end, and we saw this with COVID, if you want to influence behavior, the most effective way to do that is a human-to-human -human interaction. So all of this for me is incremental. It's providing options. But at the end of the day, whether it's a sales rep or an MSL, it's that human interface in terms of outlining the clinical arguments for using product A versus product B. Okay. That's still at the core of what we do. And to double down on that, does that change the, the competency, the profile of people on both sides of the spectrum, your R&D team on the one hand and your commercial team on the other? Yes, I think it does. From a commercial perspective, the, the theme that we are really focused on in terms of selecting people who can go up to senior levels in the commercial organization is scientific fluency. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have uh, been educated in a scientific discipline. It means there's a passion around understanding how products work and how products can help patients and, and equipping yourself with that knowledge and remaining current. I think for the, the R&D organization, it's starting to factor in elements like IRA in terms of target selection, best in class versus first in class. These are all important parameters which may not have needed to be incorporated because in a way there's probably more room to move, more room for error. The other element from a marketing point of view is the cycle times, as I mentioned earlier before, using these tools. You saw a centralization of marketing. I think what you're going to see, you're going to see standard global product positioning, the label, et cetera. But in terms of generation of content and material for individual physicians, those cycle times are going to get faster and faster. So I think we're going to see a decentralization of a lot of the marketing elements, but we have to balance that with making sure that it's compliant on label, et cetera. So I think that's the emerging challenge for the, for the marketing organization. And as you think of adjectives that are going to be critical for success in that marketing organization around competency, around capability. What are you noodling on? I think you need to be a lot more quantitative. Historically, if you look at individuals in marketing, we take them from the field force. They may not have been formally trained in marketing. I think there's going to be, that is increasingly critical that maybe not when they're promoted, but people 
develop themselves with those skills and that there's greater emphasis on quantitative and qualitative information outside the US. The US has always been critically part of that. Mm. But I think there's a greater demand and we've got the tools now when you look at some of the, the, the way that we're operating with the sales force and the marketing organizations to be a lot more quantitative, a lot more directed and a lot more fact-based, frankly, in terms of, of how we interact with and, and make decisions around resource allocation. I know some tricks there in terms of getting the R&D teams and the commercial teams to, to work closely together. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's at the end, it's this positive tension I was talking about, which is you want the R&D organization to understand the factors that play from, from the commercial organization's perspective and vice versa. So for us, and this is a model that was you know, originally developed at Aventus, but we have a rule that if you want to become a general manager as a first-time general manager in this organization, you must have worked in global marketing. Now, global marketing for some companies is a dumping ground for nice, well-meaning people who may not necessarily have a strong trajectory. In other companies, we've tried to make it where the best and brightest go. And because there's two big advantages to that. One for the individual, they develop a deep understanding of how the R&D organization works, which as they become more senior, becomes more and more critical. And you have that positive feedback into the R&D organization, but also empathy to what is possible and what is not possible in an R&D context. And then ultimately for the individual themselves, yeah, they have that skill, but as a company, if you think about it, if you're an, if you're a general manager in the market, or a business unit head, or a marketing manager, or a sales manager, you are stuck with decisions which were made ten years ago by your commercial colleagues, either with high involvement or low involvement in R and D decisions. So your capacity to influence that is relatively limited. Whereas if we have a group of commercial people working closely with the R and D organization around choices today, in terms of which programs go forwards, comparators, dose, benefit, risk, trade off you can have a 20-year impact on an organization by making the right choices. So having a cohort of people that are skilled and that we don't keep them in headquarters too long, but they have a tour there of three to five years, learn how R&D works, and then we send them back out into the operations and accelerate their career. I've personally strongly believe, and I've seen this at, at, at Roche uh, and, and then AstraZeneca and now hopefully at GSK, you end up with better products, more competitive products, able to help more people. Great. And if you look at some of the skill set around what makes that impact or what makes that change, your current role in terms of change and change management, I suspect is pretty full on. What are the challenges around the change management aspect of what you're doing today? I mean, everything comes down to people at the end of the day. It's constantly moving, but people make a massive difference. So uh, a lot of decisions we make are around matching the right person with the right challenge and it does make a difference and if you get it right then things can happen that may not have happened i've seen a number of times where there's a highly innovative product that may have failed without one person standing up and saying i believe in this and they're not usually senior management it's usually someone on the team that passionately believes in it so it's that flexibility it has to be based on something so again this scientific fluency is really important for for commercial people and yeah, and being prepared to do that. So a lot of that change is about finding great products embedded in the pipeline or outside the company and then marshalling the resources in partnership with R&D to accelerate them. And if you do that, you're creating value. Is that, is that tough to do in an environment which is large um, and historically, if I can say it slow, um, it takes a long time to develop a drug. 
And the consequence of that, the knock-on effect of that, is that things don't happen overnight. So how are you speeding things up at GSK? The industry is a relatively slow timeframes for, for many good reasons, but it's how you are relative to your peer set. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think most of that value, you can actually, in a, in a large company, concentrate it down to a small number of people who, you know, internally we talk about the two most critical roles in terms of having impact overall in the company are the general manager, because they're in the operation, they represent the company in that country, and then the people who are responsible for the programs in the pipeline. And that group is actually a very small number of people in a even in a big company. There might only be 10, 12 programs, maybe 15 at the most, if you're lucky, that are going to make a difference to the organization's health in five years' time, 10 years' time. So getting those people right, both for R&D and commercial, is absolutely critical. And as you look at the digital AI piece, which we've touched on a bit, what's out there that you're seeing that's going to change the future state? I mean, our strategy there is to be a, a fast follower. So we are very actively looking at what other organizations in the industry, outside the industry are doing. When we see something that is inflecting, then we try and essentially industrialize that idea. And that's been our approach. Linked to that is this decentralization I talked about before. So letting countries and teams experiment, and if we see something good there, we we scale it. I mean, AI is, okay, it's the topic of the moment, but I think for biology, it's particularly interesting because if you think about the, the knowledge that we're getting around, I mean, a typical phenotype in a disease, it's when you multiply the number of people that may have that particular disease, we tend to look at it as a monolith. Breast cancer is a classic example of that. We know, you know, you go back 20 years ago, breast cancer was a singular entity. Now it's multiple diseases in one. So then where is the granular point? At what point do we get to an electron or a quark or a subatomic level I guess to apply physics in this context, typical human brain can't see those patterns. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing is working with 23andMe where you've got all of this genetic information as well as components about a person's family history, et cetera, and using machine learning AI to try and spot patterns that uh, may not be there. And this is a race because if you think about it, genetic information is relatively static. It's like minerals in the ground. And it's always been there, but it's not visible. So there's, the industry is involved in a race to try and identify those patterns and then identify targets. So that's got to be a good thing because mm. it's going to increase productivity. It's going to mean more drugs are available. But that, I think, is really where AI has probably the potential for the biggest impact in the industry is picking patterns that may have taken us 10 years to see, if ever. And we're certainly seeing that in terms of the number of targets being produced. In commercial, again, it's pattern recognition around behavior and resource allocation uh, and provision of information. And, and does the patient choice change the dynamic on that in some senses? Well, I think, yeah, that's really interesting because you've got more informed patients now, more engaged mm-hmm. patients. Now, there's a spectrum, of course, in terms of how much they're involved. That varies by individual, education level, etc. And you've also got the disease. Let's say you have pancreatic cancer. You're probably going to defer to your physician more than you would if you had rhinitis, right? So there is that element there. But there's also good information and bad information out there. So I think that's the challenge of the industry, which is providing fact-based, clinically validated information for patients, still recognizing, though, the most important interface for that patient is their physician and the caregiver, the HCP, 
but yeah, supporting everyone to help them make the appropriate decision there. So more informed patients, more engaged patients, is, it has to be a good thing. So Luke, let's um, talk a little bit about culture and change and, and what you're trying to do, what GSK is trying to do to change the culture. Sure. I mean, I think, Charlie, the biggest impact on anyone's day-to-day working experience is, is their manager, right? It's the most important relationship they have. So as we really tried to change the culture to make it, from a commercial perspective, more robustly competitive, one that rewards people who innovate and, and think differently. So we've, we've changed either through promoting or moving almost all of our general managers, and then you see this natural cascade. You know, if we move someone from, say, Thailand to Germany, that then's a cascade of the, the organization changing and creating opportunities for people to, to move or also be promoted. And the, the culture we're trying to create is one that's it's a meritocracy where people who produce and, and generate results the right way, they get opportunities, and they get opportunities in a flexible context. And so, yeah, a lot of time on that, and so a big bit of my role is to deeply into the organization, trying to understand the talent and, and the individuals that we have, which is frankly the most rewarding part of my job is yeah, creating opportunities and working with the team to create opportunities for people to, to progress their career. And what are the challenges that, that you've faced or some of those folks have faced as you've, as you've gone through this cascade of, of, of change and, and moves? The, the most important element is building, understanding the organization about what we're trying to achieve and the reasons for it, which at the end of the day is trying to find more differentiated products and ultimately that alone is not enough. It needs The arguments need to be made. It needs to be translated into successful commercial outcomes so that we get the right to reinvest in a new wave of R&D. And so the commercialization, having the right people who really understand that in the right place is absolutely critical, but that takes time. But um, yeah, it's so far it's yielding results and we, we, we're seeing an acceleration in our growth. And people are getting opportunities that may not have got opportunities in the past. That's also very exciting. Absolutely. So on you, just just briefly, um, spin back 20 years. What were you doing 20 years ago? Oh, uh, 23 years ago, I was in Thailand as a general manager in the middle of SARS. I'm around that time. Okay. That was an interesting experience. So, so what do you say to, let's say, uh, a country manager in Thailand today? in terms of career and progression and things that they should and perhaps shouldn't do? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I think every career is different. The main elements are it's really, you know, in a country management role of that scale is really trying to understand your whole team and ultimately how, yeah, how can you work with them to create value? I was very focused on how do we expand access in Thailand for, for patients. Uh, I was at Aventus at that time. Sanofi then acquired Aventus and I was, I had the opportunity to stay in Thailand, which was a safe bet, or I could move to work in the US, but move into an environment where an integration was occurring and no one knew who I was in the US. And so could have been ejected from the US quite quickly as part of a merger synergy. And um, yeah, took the decision uh, with the family to go to the US. And uh, so I think it's calculated, educated risk-taking. If you've got the fundamentals right, calculated educated risk taking is is the thing you should do at points in time okay well i mean you have and i think i was counting up seven moves or seven countries you've lived in in your career a very um, tolerant wife <laughs> and family by the sounds <laughs> of things but again just on the 
give give us some advice. Give give the folks listening to this some advice in terms of managing a, a career within a pharmaceutical company such as you've done. Be obsessed with products. That's number one, right? If you really understand the products, products will help people and not losing that connection. So understanding your portfolio, the competitor's portfolio and how that information changes over time, that's point number one I would say. And I, I, you know, I think that's pretty, there's nothing miraculous in that. And then the element is just being really focused on the people around you. I've been fortunate enough to work with incredible people and, and uh, that's so important because if you've got a really strong team around you, uh, that makes a difference. Take some risks, jump at things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the end, it's calculated risk. You, 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 know, you can't bet the house on everything, but it's, it's a portfolio uh, series of choices. And sometimes it's going to be right for you and your family to, to take that risk, and other times it's not going to be right. And as people grow and mature over time, you're hopefully better equipped to make those decisions. And the other element is if you've got people around you that are experienced, then you know, listening to that advice is always helpful. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to follow it, but the more people that you can cross-reference your thinking with, that's probably a good thing. So you have mentors and, and folks? Yeah, I've you... been very fortunate to have great great mentors and, yeah, the opportunity to uh, learn from people. But you can learn anywhere, right? I've learned things from people all over the place and are still learning. And, um, yeah, that's... That's the fun of this industry. You work with really, really clever people. It's very humbling, the knowledge that people have, the passion that they have. So, yeah, you're always picking up something new every time. There you, you go. Yeah. Well, I've, I've always seen knowledge and passion with you, um, and we've known each other for a, a few years. But, um, look, thank you. Really appreciate the time together, and uh, I wish you well. Thanks, Charlie. It's a privilege to be here today. Well, I'm glad you made it. I mean, seven countries. It's a surprise to find you in London today. <laughs> yes, always on the run. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time. <laughs>